Okay, I want to welcome you all to our faith builders. Well, obedience, when you think about it, is something that is critical in our lives. From childhood, we're told not to touch the stove. Why? So you don't get burned. Or across the street, without looking, what could happen? Could get hit by a car. As adults, we drive 55 on Sunset Point in front of the church. And there's one of our Clearwater police officers that sees us go by and clocks us. What do you think might happen? We don't obey the law. What is the speed limit in front of the church? Anybody? 40. Okay, 40. So 55, you might get a ticket. Well, in the Army, uh, going through basic training, we had to get through toward the end uh, what they call an obstacle course. And obstacle course, they have you running over things, crawling under things, but the very end, you're kind of uh, practicing going on a convoy or you're walking together with the first sergeant. And all of a sudden he says, hit the ground because overhead is going to be 50 millimeter bullets spraying overhead in a few moments. And you don't have time to say, well, I don't know if I'm going to obey that one. I might wait a couple of minutes. If you do, you won't be around anymore. So you had to obey that command or risk losing your life. One mother demanded total obedience in this story shared by Charles Swindoll. And it's called Deepwater Faith. A funny thing happened in Darlington, Maryland several years ago. Edith, a mother of eight, was coming home from a neighbor's house one Saturday afternoon. Things seemed too quiet as she walked across her front yard. Curious, she peered through the screen door and saw five of her youngest children huddled together, concentrating on something. As she crept closer to them, trying to discover the center of attention, she could not believe her eyes. Smack dab in the middle of the circle were five baby skunks. Edith screamed at the top of her voice, Quick children, run! Each kid grabbed a skunk and ran. (laughs) That's obedience. That's obedience, isn't it? They ran with that skunk. I don't think that was the idea, but they obeyed. Well, as believers, we're expected to obey God totally, 100%. 1 Samuel 15:22 tells us as the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord behold to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams Well this morning we're going to look at an Old Testament story illustrating God's ways are higher than our ways and when God's word is given it must be absolutely obeyed Join me in 2 Kings 5. 2 Kings 5. And here we find a story illustrating total obedience is required when God's word is given. And as we read through this portion of scripture, we'll conclude with four lessons we can use in our daily lives. 2 Kings chapter 5. Before we look at this, let's uh, pause for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have your word to open, to learn from, to study, to have the freedom to meet together as we do and 
Father, not only to hear your word, but to be obedient to it. And we want to learn today, Lord, that you demand absolute obedience to your word, not halfway, not three-quarter, but all the way. And when you tell us something in your word, with your help, Lord, that's the only way we can obey it. And we ask that you'd speak to us this morning through your Holy Spirit, through this story we're going to look at in 2 Kings 5. We thank you, Lord, and give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the prelude to this story, we need to introduce the various characters. We'll have God's prophet, Elisha, Elisha's assistant, Gehazi, the commanding general of the Syrian army, Naaman, the king of Israel, the king of Syria, a young Jewish girl, and of course, most importantly, God. The first verse introduces our first character, the Syrian general Naaman. Follow with me, verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Naaman's Name means gracious, and he's described as the supreme commander of the Syrian army. He has high standing, highly regarded as a great military leader, great wealth, and a courageous warrior. But he has one tiny little problem. This great leader has leprosy. Leprosy was a foul-smelling disease that appears in dry, white, thin scabs, with violent itching, and as the disease progresses, whole sections of skin fall off, leaving tissue underneath exposed. While doing military training in Fort Sherman, Panama, there was a leper colony. And I remember uh, MREs, I don't know if everybody knows what that is, but that's meals ready to eat. They're, if you want to eat them, if you get desperate enough to eat them, but they come in a package And I remember when we went to Fort Sherman, uh, there were some leftovers from those MREs, and we gathered those all together, put them in bags, and we left those at the end of the road to the leper colony, because every time we got close, they would yell out, we're a leper colony, don't come any closer. So we came as close as we could and shared that with them, but they were separated, they were away from the normal population that was there. The Bible goes into a lot of detail about leprosy in Leviticus 13. Let's look back a couple of chapters there and we can see a little bit more about leprosy. Leviticus chapter 13. 13 beginning at verse 42. But... If on the bald head or the bald forehead there occurs a reddish-white infection, it is leprosy breaking out on his his bald head or on his bald forehead. Then the priest shall look at him. The swelling is reddish. It goes on and on. Uh, Leprosy in the skin. He's a leprous man. He's unclean. The priest pronounces him unclean because of that infection. His clothes shall be torn, the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and 
he must cry, cover his mustache and cry unclean and clean. He shall remain unclean, goes on and on. Uh, the garment has the mark of leprosy, whether it's wool or linen. And so we see a lot of description about leprosy and how uh, they were separated because uh, they didn't want others uh, to come in contact with somebody who had leprosy. So Naaman, he's a great leader. He's well respected. He's wealthy, but he has leprosy. But now the next couple of verses, we see God's sovereignty in action. Now the Armenians had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. A young captured Jewish girl who was assigned to work for General Naaman's wife knew of Elisha the prophet and the power God had given to this prophet. So Elisha's reputation had preceded him for this little girl to even know about him. We ever have that going on today where uh, we kind of by reputation or precedes us when we're looking for a surgeon or a doctor or someone to go to with a particular need or a plumber or electrician. Now we're talking way up there because those are hard to find. But their reputation because they do good work because they've done uh, well in, in what God's called them to do, uh, they're referred you know, to, to us in those times of need. Well, based on this lead for help with his leprosy, General Naaman checks it out with his boss as we go on to verse 4. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, and he was his master, the king, thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. So based on this lead, the Syrian king tells his general, load up some stuff, and he would write a letter to the king of Israel, introducing him and telling the king of Israel what he wanted. The approximate value of this was okayed by the king, and he was sent forth with approximately $218,000 worth of silver, $2 million in gold, 20 changes of clothing for a total value of about two and a quarter million dollars worth of stuff that he loaded up. In Elisha's day as today, bribes were common. If you wanted something done, you just kind of threw in a little bit extra to get somebody to do what you wanted. And if Naaman wanted healing, why not take along all this to get it done? And that never happens in today's world, does it? Bribery? We never hear of that. But in those days, that was a common thing. And as I was thinking about that and all this that uh, Naaman was going to bring along, I was thinking of another example of bribery was Balak. Remember Balak in Numbers 22 trying to bribe a Balaam to do what he wanted? And I was telling this story to, to some of the uh, little kids, because they requested, actually it was my grandchildren, 
uh, who had asked for a story. I thought, well, I'm going to tell him one they probably don't know. And I said, you ever hear about Talking Donkey? No, Pop-Pop, I've never heard that one. So that's the story of Balak and Balaam. And he wants them to go curse him. And, and the prophet says, I can't do that unless God tells me to do it. And he tries to bribe him. I'll give you anything really you want if you go do what I say. And finally he's on his way and he's beaten up on his donkey. And the donkey stops. And he gets real angry and he's hitting him with a switch, whatever he could find. And finally the donkey turns around and says, I can't really, I can't go any further. There's an angel standing here. And was there one? Yeah, who sent the angel? God did. And the prophet had to learn again and anew be reminded he wasn't going to do, do what he wanted. He was going to do what God wanted him to do. Another example was with Samuel's sons in 1 Samuel 8.3. Samuel's sons, it says, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Samuel's sons took bribes when they should have been following God and being honest. The next part, as we get to verse 6, I think it's hilarious, is General Naaman approaches the, the king of Israel with this letter from his king, and he's got all this stuff. Look with me, beginning at verse 6. It says, He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. Well, the content of this letter in verse 6 is to the point, isn't it? It says, I'm sending my general here so you can cure him of his leprosy. Simple task, right? Well, Jehoram, the king of Israel, reacts, starts tearing his clothes in frustration, saying, I'm not God. And he concludes this other king, Ben-Hadad, you just want to fight. You just want to have a quarrel with me. That's why you're sending this to me. And Jehoram shouts, am I God? He knew only God could do the impossible, that the other king the king of Naaman was asking him to do. There's a lot of examples of God's power shared throughout the Bible. A couple of those in Genesis chapter 20, beginning of verse 17 is one example. Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife, that's God's power in action. In Joshua 10, verse 12, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. That's God's power. He's the creator of the universe. He's 
our creator. He's our savior. Psalm 66, 7 reminds us, He, God, rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Jeremiah 51, 15, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he stretched out the heavens. Once in a while, we just kind of go outside and we see a clear night and we look up and begin to see the stars. And the more you look, the more you see. And I remember one night trying to count them. I couldn't even get out of one little section how many. Because I'd say, did I count that one? Oh, there's another one beside it. God named every one of those stars. That's how great he is. That's the God who hears our prayers. That's the God who walks with us every day. Now we hear God's messenger, Elisha, enter the scene as we begin looking here at verse 8. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elisha heard something going on at the palace. Something not good. King's tearing his clothes. Elisha followed Elijah. Just a little background as God's prophet. His name means God is salvation. He performed many miracles including raising the Shunammite's son from the dead in 2 Kings 4. Elisha hears about the ruckus, but he doesn't panic. He says, King, go ahead and send Naaman and his group over to my place. He's not intimidated because Elisha, he has his focus where? On the Lord. He's looking up. He's trusting God. So Naaman stands at Elisha's gate as we look here at verse 9. Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. So here he comes. He's at the end of the driveway waiting to be welcomed by the prophet Elisha loaded with all his horses and camels and whatever else he had that he brought along in case he needed to bribe Elisha to do what he wanted and to heal him. So with anticipation, General Naaman expects a royal treatment as we see at verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Again, he's waiting at the doorway saying, here's the message. And who do you think the messenger was? His assistant member, Gehazi. Gehazi, he sends him down and gives him a message. So Elisha doesn't come and bow before him, roll out the red carpet, but he sends a messenger to him saying, here's what you need to do, Naaman. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. So simple. God has spoken his word. So instead of that rolling out the red carpet, here comes the messenger to the end of the driveway and he relays a message from who? From God through Elisha. And it's basically God is saying, 
Go wash in the dirty Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. Simple and direct, right? Not a problem there. Can't misinterpret that. That's clear. So the general reacts and he obeys, right? Look at verse 11. But Naaman was furious. And he went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He wanted him to wave his hand over him and heal him. That's what he's expecting. Here's the problem with the river, Jordan River. Are not Abana and Fafpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He was very angry. He didn't like that answer. He says, I've got cleaner places in my own home area that I could go. Why do I have to go to the river Jordan. Why? Why? God said that. He said, you do what I say. You obey what I have told you and then you can be healed. But in his arrogance and pride, Naaman couldn't believe, first of all, Elisha didn't come to the end of the driveway and appear in person. He sent his assistant, gave him a message to wash in a dirty river. After all, the general had those clean rivers he could go to. The general's self-pride was hurt. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about another man, a king, who had to learn something in Daniel 4. Anybody remember his name, King? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, he looked over Babylon and he said, look at what I've done And remember the prophecy? Remember the dream? What happened to him? He headed to the back 40 for seven years and grew hair like an animal and had nails like an animal. Why? Because he had to learn who put him in where he was at. God had. God was the one in charge, not Nebuchadnezzar. And the same thing is true here with pride. We never battle that, do we? Pride, that's something in the Old Testament, not for today. But pride often keeps us from obeying God because it displays a self-sufficient attitude. I can do it myself. Look at what I've done. Instead of saying, God, you deserve the glory. So General Naaman, with his leprosy, stomps off, says, and he took off. He's so angry. He's not. Do we think clearly when we're angry? No, usually we make bad decisions most of the time, don't we? But thankfully, General Naaman has a good command staff. And that's one thing I learned in, in the military. Why do you need a command staff? So the commander makes bad decisions? Good decisions. So they know what they're up against. And I remember when you went before... The commander, you would say, okay, here's three things we can do. We can do number one, but this will be. Number two, this will happen. Number three, this could happen. But we recommend number two. You give a recommendation. He can see, well, I can see maybe number two is a good option. Well, this command staff in verse 13 talked to this angry general. It says, then his servants came near. 
They spoke to him and said, they addressed him, my father. They were close. said, my father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing? Would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? That's simple. They got it. They said, what if they had said, go climb Mount Everest or go across the desert for 30 days and you'll be healed? Wouldn't you have done that? All they're saying is reconsider here. Go wash and be clean. They saw the hope. Their hope there was even in God as well. That this was the God of Elisha. This was the God of this little girl who had recommended. They go to Elisha who in turn got the word from God on how he could be healed. So calling him my father, they had a real concern for Naaman. They had been working with him. He had leprosy and they counsel him. They're saying, really, General, what do you got to lose? Go for it. It's simple. Go and wash as was told you. So finally, we see Naaman decides to obey God's word, his directions for healing. Look at verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. So what did he do? He went to the murky, dirty, muddy Jordan River and he washed himself one time. Did he still have leprosy? Two times. Three, four, five, still leprous. Six times, but the seventh time, the point of total obedience, Naaman is healed. And his flesh is that of a little child. That would have been unbelievable. Think of the witness to his command staff. Seeing their leader now coming up, they've been working with, full of leprosy. And now evidence of the great God of Elisha, the great God of this little Jewish girl. God totally healed Naaman when he absolutely, completely obeyed God to the letter. We can't compromise when God works in our lives. And so we get to verse 15 through 19. We see the reaction of Naaman. It says here, he had flesh like the flesh of a little child and clean. When he returned, verse 15, to the man of God, where is he going back to? Elisha's house. With all his company, and he came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, Elisha says, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And I read that, and I'm so amazed at the attitude of Elisha. Why doesn't he want to take part of the credit? Who did this? Who deserves all the glory? Who's the one who performed the miracle? The credit should go 80% to God? 100%. Elisha recognized this. He says, I can take nothing And he urged him to take it, but he still refuses. He wants to reward. Naaman wants to reward Elisha. And so he wants him to 
take part of maybe what he had. And we know the story later on, another whole message of somebody who was kind of eyeing all that gold and all that silver and all the change of clothing. But that is another story. Now we're looking at God getting the glory. And he deserves that in our lives as well. When God, when we obey God and he works in our life and he's fulfilling, Romans 8.28 says that how many things work together? All things work together. Who should get all the glory for all, every time God answers? God should. We should take none of the credit. But Naaman does want to do something else as we read on. But he said, as the Lord lives, Elisha refused it. Naaman said, if not, if you won't take part of what I've brought along here as a reward, please let your servant at least be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Pretty powerful witness. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ryman to worship there. And he leans on my hand and I bow myself to the house of Ryman. When I bow myself in the house of Ryman, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And then Elisha said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. So Naaman now wants to take two mule loads of soil back to Damascus so he could offer burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord when he returned. Say, well, that seems kind of odd. Well, in the ancient Near East, it was thought that a God could only be worshipped on the soil of the nation to which that God was bound. So he wanted Israeli soil to worship the true God. He wanted to take that along. And further, Elisha is asked to offer a prayer of forgiveness for this new believer. He still would have to go with the king to those other gods, but his heart was to worship the true God. And that's why he wanted this soil to take along. And Elisha says to Naaman, what does he say in verse 19? Go in peace. Whose peace? God's peace. Do we need that? And we need that today with some of the days that we face? Absolutely. Every day. Many times a day. And now we come to the four lessons we can learn from this story in Scripture. The first one is God uses little people to accomplish His will. God uses little people to accomplish His will. That little Jewish girl, she just didn't happen to be there, did she? And she had heard about the prophet Elisha even as a little girl and she speaks up and says, your husband, there's somebody who might be able to help him because he's whose prophet? God's prophet. And God can maybe heal him. So God uses little people. Does he do that today? Little people, obscure people. He uses us, doesn't he, at times? We'll look at a situation, we'll say, wow, that, that looks impossible. And God says, let me work through it. Let me answer this prayer. Let me work in this situation. And God then deserves the glory for all that he does. 
A second lesson we can learn, God's word is clear. Was it clear what Naaman needed to do? What was getting in the way of him obeying immediately? Pride. Boy, dirty Jordan. I'll tell you, when you're in the military, even if the water's a little dirty and you've been out there a couple weeks, you don't care. You just get it washed off, right, Dennis? Get it washed off best you can. So what? God's word is clear here. Go into the Jordan River and wash seven times. And the seventh time he was healed. Is God's word clear today? We have so much here. And I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity recently to to read through the Bible in a year. Do it. I encourage it. Carol and I read through it last year. This year we're doing it the chronological one by the events and such. But as we get more and more familiar with the Word, God the Holy Spirit uses it more in situations we get into and says, here, remember this, remember that. Is that true? Why do we hide God's Word in our heart? When Satan comes at us or throwing something our way, can't say, Satan, wait a minute, I think I'm going to look at, I think there's a verse here somewhere doesn't work that way, does it? We need God's Word in our hearts so we can use it. And it is clear. A third lesson, God's directions must be followed completely. God's directions must be followed completely. We can't halfway obey God. We either obey Him or we don't obey Him. And I was looking at other scriptures as well, other places in the Bible where that's true. Joshua 6 was one. When they faced the the walls of Jericho and they were told specifically, here's how we need to do it, they had to obey God completely, didn't they? And it says the seventh time they were going around and blew the trumpets and the people shouted, what happened? The walls came down. But what if they would have stopped after five days? Or three had to obey God completely. And then I was also thinking of Noah in Genesis 6. When God said to Noah, I want you to build the ark and it needs to be this size and this part needs to be this size. And Noah had to build it right and he did build it right. It says in verse 22, he did it exactly how God told him. Do you think that makes a difference in a flood? If you have a few cracks here and there, just forget about a little mud there. Don't need that. Had to follow it completely for that ark to be a place where they could safely be through that flood. So God's directions must be followed completely. And finally, number four, the lesson we can learn. God must get all the glory. Just like last week, Peter's delivery from death row. Remember, they were praying for him and they were shocked that he showed up. (laughs) Let's pray for him all week. And he's knocking at the door and a little girl says, it's Peter. And he said, no, no, that's his ghost. That's not really him. Sure it was him. And he kept knocking and they finally let him in. So they could give God all the glory. But it says all the people that were praying for Peter were astonished. They couldn't believe it. <laughs> well, Naaman here did what God told him to obey completely. And he was healed of his leprosy. So we need to recognize 
And we need to give God the glory. When we are given His Word and we obey it, and He answers it, most of the time in greater ways than we can ever imagine, we need to thank Him and we need to praise Him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You again for Your Word. We're thankful for the story of Naaman and Elisha and how You worked to show us that when You give us Your Word, we need to obey it. Give us a faith, give us a trust to obey it, help us to study it, to learn, not only to to read it, but to apply it. That's so hard, Lord. We've got to have your help. We ask you again for your grace and mercy. Even today, this coming week, we fall short so often. Pray, Father, that pride would not be in the way. And Father, I know in my own life, just, Humble me as you choose fit, Lord, that I may honor and glorify you. I pray that for all my brothers and sisters here as well. I thank you and give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.